Welcome to JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigel and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. Hi, this is Ellie. This week on Pop Parenting, we're doing the movie Contact. Contact is a movie that asks big questions. And this week, Avram and I are using it to explore how anxious societies deal with uncertainty and how that plays out in families. We're also asking how our experience with our own parents influences our present relationships and what that feels like. Okay, here we go. So here we go. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome, Pop Parenting. Hello, hello. Hi, Avram. All right, today we are looking at the film um, Contact. Um, as we were speaking about before we begin, we are also today in uh, Yamashoa. So we're going to sort of um, bring that into our conversation as well. Um, Just to, uh, so Yom HaShoah, for those who, listeners who might not know, Yom HaShoah is the day of remembrance. It's, it's a holiday actually in Israel, um, and it is a commemoration of the 6 million Jews who died in the Holocaust. Um, and we're not going to, this is not a show about Yom HaShoah, uh, but there are themes in this movie that touch on issues of theodicy. How can evil, how can a just God exist with evil, blah, 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 and death. And so anyways, all that stuff and the day. So uh, awesome. Want to acknowledge the day. Okay. Amazing. Um, so that was your on one, on one foot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's good night. The very Thank on one foot. Um, that was impressive. Okay. So maybe let's do the on one foot of what the film is and um and let's dig in because i i have to say you know i actually watched this with my kids so first of all the fact that they sat through a two hour and almost 45 minute movie um was in itself very impressive um and they loved it they, they really loved this film and and it touches on so many great questions it touches on you know science it touches on social responsibility it touches on like you said issues around faith and god and how that interacts with science and there's just so many great themes in this film and it's it's beautifully acted um so it's it's definitely one of those films that i forget about and then this is really the first time i've seen it in probably 15 years and and it really stood the test of time for me i thought there were a lot of relevant themes still like in terms of her being a female scientist and being sort of shoved aside in a certain way like so a lot of really interesting stuff in there. So, um, and it really is a what if story, you know, it's like, what if this really actually did happen and, and, and how society would respond and what people would do. And there was a lot of talk with me and my kids around, do you think that's what people would do if we found out there were actually aliens? Like, would people be lining up at the contact spot? Would they be protesting? Would they like, what would people do? And it's a really great question, um, especially since that Israeli guy came out and said that there was evidence of aliens. I don't know if you saw this. 
<laughs> like I a guy not, who's apparently that. part of high up in the Israeli military who like affirmed a few months ago that there is something to be said about that. So my kids thought that was pretty cool. Um, I, I all think, right. you know, one of the things um, that I thought specifically uh, addressing your kid's question or your question to your kids about um, how would society respond to something, there were parts of the film that I found were just uncanny and how similar society was reacting to what Dr. Bowen called societal regression, when there's an increase in chronic anxiety in society or an acute anxiety, something that's happening, how um, there's very predictable counter moves that happen. People become very, um, uh, people group together. We, yep. we, 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 we get into our tribes and we get very militant about what our beliefs are versus the people who we don't agree with. So yeah, you absolutely. see in the film, when you're watching that film, which was 1997, I believe. I mean, they're using Netscape as a browser. So I mean, that's like, that's like wasn't that cool? Good point. Like, hey, Netscape, I forgot about Netscape. Um, so they're using Netscape. Um, and so that's about like late nineties. When, when you see the crowds uh, gathering before that yeah. weird space thing takes off, it is so reminiscent of the moves and counter moves around lockdowns and yeah, coronavirus absolutely. that it is uncanny. I was watching it going, oh my God, like this, just change the clothes and you can see some semblance of what's happening right now. I, and yeah, for sure. Later, but I thought that was very sort of similar. Um, anyways, okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good point. Like when you think about it, it, any sort of huge disruptor, yeah, we're seeing a very similar response, the masks and no masks and the freedom and the no freedom and the lockdown and the no lockdown. And yeah, and, and how people are polarizing, like where they stand on those things is, is fascinating. Um, so yeah, so contact. Okay, the movie on one foot. I, again, it's both of us remarked, it's a long movie. <laughs> There's a lot that happens. So, but on one foot, the story is Jodie Foster plays a character who, as a young girl, has a beautiful relationship with her father. His, her father's a single father. Her mother died, I believe, in childbirth. And um, they have this beautiful relationship where he encourages her to follow her passions and they're big into CB radio. You know, she's, you know, learning that, wow, you can get on this radio and send out a signal and find somebody who's online, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And so you see her grow up, she becomes a major MIT Harvard scholar scientist involved in communications. Um, and uh, she becomes involved in SETI, which is the scientific exploration of, I think it's uh, extraterrestrial life or something like that. And she's uh, a person who wants to use science to confirm that there is life outside of Earth. And um, she gets a lot of pushback um, from different programs who are funding her. Eventually, she ends up being funded by this very eccentric, you know, trillionaire uh, who like lives on the Mir space station and basically, you know, says if anyone's going to do it, you're going to, he funds her project. And one day sitting out in the middle of the New Mexico desert, she hears something and goes running back. Um, oh, sorry. In the meantime, she has an encounter with a young man as she's beginning her research who is a, what he calls a man of the cloth without the cloth. This is Matthew McConaughey, McConaughey's character and they have a brief um, uh, relationship and they for sure connect, but he really believes in God and she really believes in science. 
And it's very interesting to watch the faith that they both have in these particular worldviews and the question of how do you reconcile those with each other? And so they you know, have a brief relationship, break up, they don't see each other again. On she goes, she gets this funding, she suddenly hears something in the sky, which does not sound random. They confirm that it is not random and it is actually an alien communication and it's being sent in a mathematical format. And so everybody gets on board. Of course, the military gets involved. It's on American soil that it's discovered. So they, of course, take over the project. They eventually find that what's being communicated with them is a communication from outer space in a mathematical formula that's giving them the specs to build a machine um, that will somehow create some sort of connection with them and this alien race. So the whole world is on board. They spend trillions of dollars building this machine, which I'm sure in 1997 was a lot of money. <laughs> now By the that's way, that's like... another, uh, Ellie, that was another <laughs> common theme I found with today, which is how the whole world has come together and to create yeah. this vaccine. I thought, again, that that was sort of similar. Uh, but yeah. okay, please. Uh, yeah, yeah, really beautiful. It's a great, it's a great, um, parallel because yeah it's really true it's un unprecedented in that way and so they build this machine she is not chosen to go on it because the person that's running the program basically takes over and shoves her out of the way because she's a woman and he doesn't respect her and he thinks she's crazy but then he takes her project because she actually found something there's a horrible accident where there's people protesting saying that you know this science is interfering with their idea of God and uh, basically a religious terrorist blows up the machine, killing this guy with it. And lo and behold, the trillionaire living on the Mir space station reveals to her that they built two. So they built one that everyone knew about and one that nobody knew about, that the American government did this and that she's finally gonna get her chance to go. She becomes the person to go into the machine. She goes into the machine um, it basically to the outside world looks as if it's this ball dropping through this machine and to the outside world, it looks as if the ball just dropped through and nothing happened. But to her, in her experience, she had a, I think it was eight hours, six hours, 18 hours. She had an 18 hour long experience Hi. of that's a uh, good point. Whoa. Whoa. Jewish uptake there. That's impressive. So she has this experience of 18 hours of traversing the universe, seeing all of these things and actually having a conversation with this alien race who pose as her father, interestingly enough, right? A character in her mind who is comforting, who is missed and, and loved. And they communicate saying, this is the first step towards building, you know, you guys into this sort of intergalactic um, experience that the rest of the galaxy has. Um, she comes back, no one believes her. And so she reunites with Matthew McConaughey on this precedent that he, this experience that he talks about of God, which is, this is his experience and it doesn't matter that he can't explain it to anybody he just wanted to make sure that everybody else has this experience too because it was beautiful and meaningful and purposeful and now suddenly she's in this position where she's had this experience and she can't explain it to anybody and no one believes her but she believes it's meaningful and purposeful and real and so you sort of see suddenly the correlations between their two experiences 
Um, and of course, at the end of the film, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, they reveal at one point that there were 18 hours of recordings on her camera, even though it was all static. And how is that possible if the camera was only on for 30 seconds? So we know there's, you know, clearly something to what she said. They never really say if they actually tell her that or not, which is interesting. Um, but the movie really ends on, you know, sort of going forward from here that they're going to start to figure out how to communicate and, and what to do with that. So I think that was everything. <laughs> yeah, if you go to the Wikipedia page on contact, there's some fascinating information about Carl Sagan, 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 yeah. Say, Sagan? Yeah. About how he, how he, you know, he was involved. I think this movie was being produced years and years and years ago and it the production heads got fired and the script it, then it went to a book and it became a movie and and it and the film ends with it uh it says for carl um, yes. as the, uh, the the credits sort of roll um and there's a lot of interesting if you're a, you know if you're into science fiction i am not uh and if you're into space travel and aliens i am not but if you are uh <laughs> there is fascinating information on wikipedia about um uh the double layers and triple layers of meaning in this film mm. that um that will just uh, that that will uh, you know a good add-on to what ellie just uh, spoke about so cool i'm gonna go check that out actually because i am into aliens and space yeah. <laughs> all right so where should we start i think there was so many beautiful relationships in this film i thought there were so many great um themes um what did you get in your notes where do you want to start with this <laughs> so you know because we <clears throat> were now at i don't know how many films we're at now 28 maybe 29? yeah something like, something like this that. is 29 yeah um and we've been doing this almost a year i think it'll come is it do we start this in july or august mm, i thought I it was, it was the summer yeah, yeah yeah so july so we're going to be coming up on a year of almost weekly uh, episodes, which is a miracle by the, forget about a space travel. It's a miracle in and of itself that I've committed <laughs> so to anything true. for longer than uh, two weeks. So, the, so there you go. But, um, and so what, what's happening is, you know, there are certain uh, themes that happen in all these movies that we're picking. And it's been helpful in our discussions for me to, you've, you've helped me understand just certain cultural things that were happening that I've for, forgotten in the eighties and nineties, which mm. is why they keep like recycling certain themes in movies. Well, it's happening again in this movie. It's 97. You have a father who's raising a daughter. It's interesting. It's never a son. It's, it's usually um, uh, a daughter, uh, which reminded me of Pretty in Pink. And in Pretty in Pink, we discussed, um, who was it again? It was Harry Dean Santon. That's right. Yeah. Harry Dean Santon. He played Jack, the father, um, who throughout the whole movie, if you listen to that episode, I forget which episode it is, you can search it on whatever, I, the Apple podcast, it's the, the Pretty and Pink episode, where you and I spoke about how this is a man who had unresolved grief with his mm. wife, who, who we don't know why, but she took off from the family. Um, and it, it really is trying, has trouble even getting out of bed. Now mm. you have this movie where you have David uh, David Norris, who plays Ted Arroway, which is interesting. David Norris, uh, I don't know if it, you remember L.E.E.R. Do you ever watch E.R.? Of course, I was going to say, was, yeah. Was he, he, he was one of the doctors and he was- Yes, no, no, no. he was. No, no he was no. seen elsewhere. What a show. <laughs> <laughs> I loved St. Elsewhere. Well, yes. it, it, look, they were both like three three Kleenex boxes an episode. So yes, they were both really 
really intense and really good. Yeah, yeah. stay elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that's right. Stay elsewhere. Um, and so uh, he, his wife uh, dies. Now, what's in the movie, they don't tell you. I, how did you know, by the way, that she died in birth? Now, I found that out, but how did you know that? No, they do say it at one point. They show, um, yeah, they, when, oh, when uh, the trillionaire, Haddon, remember he says, I know who you are. I research my investments. And he does sort of an overview of her life. Right. He says, your mother's name was Catherine and she died in childbirth with you. Okay, so in the script, in the original script that I found online, it doesn't go that way. How it, how the movie starts, or how the script starts, um, it starts with um, a doctor saying, "Call it at twelve oh one a.m." about the birth, and um, the scene opens with a nurse giving CPR to the mother mm. um, while. Uh, Ellie, 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 his name is Ellie, is holding the mother's finger. Very, very powerful wow. beginning of, of a script. They, wow. if you, I had to rewatch. I went, I went back this morning and rewatched, and they left that out. That, that's not yeah. in there. Yeah. Uh, um, actually, Ellie, if you notice at the beginning of the film, when they go through the whole sequence of the the um, going through the universe, yeah. right? They, that, which is a, a stunning sort of yeah. beginning of a film. Um, they go through the whole thing, and then it goes through her eye. There's one moment when it's going through her pupil. There's a room. I don't know if you caught that. There's a little mm-hmm. room. I paused the movie right. to see if it was the hospital room. I couldn't. I, there's no way for me to expand the image, but I don't Wild. know. But there's clearly a room in her yeah. eye after yeah. the universe. Anyways, so um, I thought it would be uh, a good time just to take pause and speak about sort of the differences between how these two. Uh, men, these two parents dealt with tragedy. Um, mm. And look, I mean, you know, I couldn't help Ellie but think when I woke up this morning um, because, uh, you know, my wife had lit a candle. We have a Yom HaShoah candle in our kitchen and, and our kids are doing some stuff around Yom HaShoah. Right. But I thought, you know, it's such a, you know, I, I remember when I was in school, you know, I was never taught how to speak about tragedy. It was just something to be avoided you know, um, if you're lucky. Right. Right. Um, and I think that, uh, I think that this film and definitely, you know, uh, the Holocaust and, uh, historical, uh, horrors and tragedies, um, mature societies and mature people don't hide from this and find ways to calmly speak about this without, cutting it out of their lives. Yeah. I think this film provokes that. I think because of the day, because it's Yom HaShoah today, I thought we can just speak about that. So maybe I'm going to throw this over to you right now, given that your kids are older than mine. And so um, a bit more mature in terms of how one might handle this. What have you found works? What do you find doesn't work? Do you, do you find it easy to talk to your kids about um things like the holocaust or when they were watching this film for example did did, mm-hmm. did, your, did your kids have a reaction at all to a, a parent dying in, in childbirth or, or no so okay a couple things so number one it's never easy it's not a conversation that should be easy necessarily um but that doesn't mean it's anxiety ridden um so 
it definitely moves a lot of feelings around. My, my kids have gone through a tremendous amount of change in the last year, um, you know, in terms of now living in two different houses and in the pandemic and becoming teenagers. And there's been a tremendous amount of upheaval in terms of tragedy. Um, you know, I think that the conversation that we mainly have around that is, you know, this idea that it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. And I think, it, but that doesn't mean that you're not supposed to have feelings about it, that you're not supposed to process whatever pains and difficulties are there. But certainly as Jews, we would consistently look at those types of things and say, well, okay, so, you know, what do we do? What do we do now? Where do we go? Um, I know that my daughter actually has an intense aversion at this stage to learning anything about the Holocaust, because one of the ways that the Holocaust has been taught in the schools, and my friend Jody Spiegel-Fagelman will speak about this a lot as the head of the Holocaust Remembrance Program at the Israeli Foundation, which is there was a certain feeling like you had to talk it, talk about it in the most blatant, brutal way possible in order to do the tragedy justice. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty with that has been that the images that younger kids have been shown has made them not ever want to talk about it again. It's traumatized them and made them not want to learn about it. So for sure, my daughter um, is very uncomfortable with the topic, doesn't want to look at anything about it, doesn't really want to talk about it because she was shown things that developmentally were not appropriate for her at that time without enough context to understand what she was looking at. Um, whereas, um, you know, I, I think a lot of the research in the education is bearing out around teaching the Holocaust now, which is teach them context, give them the story, the history of the war, give them the history, tell them who those people were, teach about who the Jewish community was in Europe at that time. You know, before you go into, you know, each year adding more nuance, but to go right in in grade four and five and to just show them pictures of people in concentration camps is counterproductive to actually having people feel invested and connected to the topic. Yeah. So I, yeah. Yeah, I, I think <clears throat> we spoke about this, I think last time, Ellie, but this has come up before. Uh, there is a, um, a trend in, in the psychotherapy world um, that sort of comes from a lot of the attachment trauma stuff, which is uh, when tragedy happens, you get in there, you, you get in there with your um, uh, crisis workers and you talk, 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 talk. But, and I, I think that uh, it, 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 there's an assumption they make, which is if we don't do this, these kids are going to be emotionally crippled or something in some future way if we don't get them right. to talk, 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 talk. And I, I think that you're onto something here, um, which is uh, not, obviously people are different, but that I think that it's important to address the anxiety or the itch. You scratch the itch that's available. Not that is that you think is there, but that the young person in front of you isn't aware of this thing. And so um, uh, I think that, um, uh, and you know, just coming back to the movie here, I think what's, what was touching, very touching, uh, I found, uh, is very touching for me in particular, because 
with my kids, my father died when my eldest was, I think he was six weeks old. And so we talk mm -hmm. about my father a lot. I, I see it as my responsibility to speak about my father. Not, not, um, I don't have it in a regimented way. I don't have like, it's not on the death of his anniversary. Do we talk about my dad, but he just, right. he comes up quite a bit. My second child is named after my father. So, you know, we'll, we'll talk about him. Right. Um, but I have uh, audio recordings of my father talking about right before he died, but how excited he was, you know, about the birth of his first grandson. I, I save that stuff. I, I try to be, I try to um, uh, match this information I have with the curiosity of, and the questions that my kids have without having them sit down and say, it's your job to listen to, to, to right. this stuff. Because then it's more about me and it's not about them. And this comes back to David Freeman's idea of seeing, hearing, and understanding your kids. I take it on faith and also just my own understanding of human psychology that you know, young people will have their day in court of curiosity about almost anything yeah. and so long as you have a responsible elder there to be able to speak with that person it's going to be a much more um fertile conversation um than you you sit down there mister because there's things that you have to see and learn and and not only that and feel right. and that's the other thing that really sort yeah. of gets me sometimes this idea you have to yeah. feel something when we we talk about this yep. um and that's usually adults in a room saying we believe <laughs> like these young people whether yeah. it's they have to be less anxious they have to be sad they have to be this what yeah. I loved about the scene in contact is that there, you know, clearly, at least for me, the metaphor of the CB radio and contacting editor is this little girl's way of trying yeah. to reach her mother. Um, and she says that she, she actually yeah. says that at one point, like, can I reach mom? Can I speak to mom? A very touching uh, yeah. sort of a thing because my kids have said to me in some ways, I, my, I, they've all said this at a certain age, usually it's around three or four. They'll say, um, does your dad, my, my, my father who died, does he know we're here? Does he, does he see us? And it always, you know, brings mm. up a lot of emotion for me. And yeah. there's a part of me and it's the fantastical maybe, you know, but it's that, it's that crotchety old theologian in me who still yeah. you know, believes in something that maybe I don't know. I'd like it to be though. I'd like it to be right. Well, that yearning, that yearning for the people who have died, that they are there somewhere in some way, in some presence is a very, very primordial and strong thing. I feel it all, all the time. Sure. My dad. And it's a beautiful scene because, and what he, and what did he say, Ellie, do you remember his response when he says, uh, he doesn't tell her, no, stupid. Uh, that's not science. What does he say to her again? Do you remember? It's a great question. I, I mean, he, yeah, he, he responds very gently. Way. Yeah, he responds very gently. I don't remember exactly what it says, but isn't that where it comes in? Doesn't he say that the universe is so large and so this and who knows? Like, I mean, yeah, I think he leaves it quite open. He said that I, I don't know how if that would work, but, you know, he emphasizes this idea of small moves, right? Like, you know, moving and she's like thinking of it, you know, each little notch on the dial, you know, if you hit the right one, eventually you'll get something. Um, right. But, um, but I don't think he, he doesn't shut her down. He just sort of gently hears that she's asking an emotional question, not an intellectual one. And, you know, we don't have the backstory, but as a therapist, I can tell you that there is a backstory there where the father would have had to lay down 
a, um, a non-anxious uh, or a less anxious environment for the child to be able to ask a question like that. Because yeah. kids, what kids do, right? They, through osmosis and mapping, they're watching us all the time and they're looking at our eyebrows and our eyes and our face. Yeah. It's not what we say, but it's kind of how we compose ourselves. And yep. they know what's dangerous and what's not dangerous. And they know what they can ask and what they can't ask. So the fact mm -hmm. that this kid asked her father means that it was safe enough to ask her father. In yes. Pretty in Pink, uh, Molly Ringwald's character, Andy, is taking yes. care of her father because she also maps her father. This man needs taken care of. Yep. Right. Yep. And so what happens when a young person, you know, whether they're 10 or 14 or 16, feel that they are responsible for their parent, there's a role reversal and they don't process the grief and the loss uh, in any way that they have to with a wise elder. We've talked about wise elders on this podcast before. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I just thought that, you know, given that we're, you know, we have enough movies under our belt now that we can sort of cross reference these things. I thought that yeah. it was very interesting in how, you know, the filmmakers in this portrayed a father in a certain way. Pretty in pink, a different way. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think that this is a model that um, if one should aspire to, it would be closer to this type of um, a, a parent. Uh, and um, so that was my, uh, my, my first point. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I was actually wondering what you thought, like, it was interesting to me how she handled the relationship with Matthew McConaughey. And do we think that that has something to do? If you look at that from a Bowen systems, like what is that for her? That she meets somebody who she clearly connects with, who she clearly feels that there's some special relationship with. And yet, you know, kind of the morning after he leaves, leaves us, you know, he's a bit, she's, she's quite distant with him and basically runs out of there. And he leaves her a note saying, please call me. And she just never calls him. And, and I thought that was so interesting in terms of like, does that fit with the model of her parental experience in some way? Yeah. I mean, you know, my first book, um, Learning to Commit, was an opportunity for me to sort of explore my own uh, anxiety about commitment. But in the process, just sort of exploring what is it that makes people so itchy and anxious about committing to someone? Well, there's a lot of different reasons. There's not just one, but one of the things is this idea of a defensive, you know, a protection against further loss, right? right? That if I open myself up to you and I allow you into my life and you're going to see all of my wounds and I'm going to all my vulnerabilities and I'm going to connect with you. As David Snarch says, and it's it's one of the most beautiful parts of passionate marriage. He ends with, you know, if you're married long enough, at some point one of you is going to say goodbye. That's that's just the nature. That's what you signed up for. And there's a song we've talked about this, Ellie, the song by mm -hmm. Iron and Wine. Um, oh, I forget it. We're gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna post it again. I'm gonna post it every single time we raise it. Actually, <laughs> that's gonna be my ritual because it's All such right. a beautiful video. And the song was so beautiful about, you know, uh, a couple who are together and then the video and the video ends uh, and it pans back with a picnic that is now alive again, but one partner um, uh, dies and that is sort of the nature and tragedy of love. Mm. If you grow up in a situation where like Ellie did in this film, where you're, I mean, it's a, I mean, talk about a tragedy. You know, yeah. Her mother dies in childbirth. Her father dies of a heart attack at the age of, she's nine. Yeah. Um, so, so what does a nine-year-old do? Well, we don't know who raised her because right. there is no background, which was weird, by the way. I yeah. 
I found that interesting also that they didn't say who she went to stay with or because that was also one of the questions my kids had, like who's going to take care of her. But they don't really say in the story, which was interesting. They don't. And and this is a side topic, but um, I'm, I'm not going to get into right now. But um, this is, you know, one of the things that happens in therapy with me, people will say to me, like, I'll have a couple in my office, right? And I'll do three generations of a, a diagram and I'll say, you know, what are your relationships like with your siblings, your parents? And then I'll go to cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents. And I'll, almost always one will say to me, what does this have to do with my marriage? Like, I don't, I don't see this at all. And I understand the question. It's a, it's a good, it's a good question because we don't live in a multi-generational world right now. We live in a very, you and me, babe, like right. taking on the world together, you know, yeah. uh, it's very romantic. But the fact of the matter is the research suggests that the less connections you have with extended family, this was one of Dr. Bowen's great contributions to psychology research, mm -hmm. the less, the, the more cut off and distance you have from those relationships. When something like this happens, when a right. parent, God forbid, dies, and you don't have that there, okay, then the state has to come in, right? And it's a much more precarious um, position for everyone. When families have a lot more tentacles into extended family, Bowen said these families generally are almost always less anxious right across the board, less physical illnesses, just all stuff related to sort of stress and anxiety and all this kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. it was a question for me in the film because I mean, who raised this kid, right? right? What we do know is that when she's an adult, and Matthew McConaughey come, comes into her life and they share this sort of, you know, physical intimate experience. She's fine with sort of like a one night stand. If you notice, they're not even dating. It's pretty much like a fling, right? right. The minute he brings up her parents, he was the one who said, yeah, he wants to get emotionally intimate with her. She can become physically intimate with him. But the minute he becomes emotionally intimate with her, you see her whole demeanor change. She gets a very stiff back. Yeah. She leaves the room and she cuts off the relationship because it isn't vulnerable. There is no risk or loss for her to become physically intimate. For another woman or a man, it would, but for her, it's not. She could do yeah. that easily. What she has trouble doing is staying with someone and holding the idea that if I allow this person to my life, they could die and leave me at some point. And for people who have trouble committing, there's usually two main themes. And then we're going to, we'll move on because this isn't a marriage. Work. But there's two main themes when people have trouble committing. It's the loss of self. So people who are afraid to commit are afraid that when they get into the, the uh, emotional connection with someone else, they lose their sense of self. And it's a very scary experience. So that's one. Those people have trouble committing. And the other people who have trouble committing often are people who have lost a lot of loved ones in their life, either through cutoff or death or, or what have you. And they just build up these defensive walls as they get older. And it's mm -hmm. kind of like, you're never going to hurt me again. So right. if I don't have to love right. anyone, and I don't have to be vulnerable. I never get hurt again. And, and which, you know, I mean, it makes sense, right? Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so I think that when she left the bedroom at that point, and he said, call me, and she does not. Um, it's look, I mean, you know, it's her way of saying, I lost two parents. Uh, I'm, I won't go through this again. And what's the one thing, by the way, that will never, ever, ever abandon her? Science. Right. Science, computers, things like like right. things you can touch and you can programming right. languages and you know so they, they don't die They're, they'll always be there it's very consistent right. and it probably regulates her anxiety to a degree it's not surprising she picked that career so there there's my standing on one foot about some commitment phobia stuff yeah no i i think it was it was so pronounced and 
you know, so obvious that they had something unique. So it was interesting to watch her totally push that away, but then be fine sitting in the middle of the desert for years on end, listening for some signal that might never come. Um, you know, sort of the dichotomy between those two things is so interesting. And then, of course, you know, Elliot, the, one of the things that this film touches on also, it's subtle, but I think it's very important, especially in our community, by the way, in, the, in, in sort of the more observant Jewish community. There's a message sometimes, I don't know, Elliot, if you pick up on this, and I'm not even quite clear on my thoughts exactly where I fall on this, but this general idea that, you know, if you, when you marry, you better pick someone with the same like, you know, in terms of at least religious practice, you better pick someone who's in the same level of you, because if you don't, oh boy, like that, you're in big, big trouble. Mm -hmm. I have to say that you touched on this in your intro comments. Um, I have to say that while I do think there is sometimes a bridge too far with certain things in relationship, um, my late supervisor said to me once, he said, I said, you know, we were talking about levels of people marrying at similar levels of emotional maturity and he said yeah to a point like i'm not so sure if a republican can marry a democrat he said this back like <laughs> in, in 2008 or something right <laughs> um but i think what this film shows and i agree with this by the way so if i'm wearing rose-colored glasses i'm fine you can you can throw this back at me but i actually <laughs> i actually believe that you have he is you know clearly he believes in god it is quite clear, and I don't think she has a conversion experience. I mean, it's quite clear she mm -hmm. is a woman of science. Mm -hmm. And yet, I think the film is trying to suggest here that so long as there is mutual respect and not what um, John Gottman says, mocking, mocking yeah. of the other person to bring them down so you can go up. So, But if there's mutual respect of difference of opinion, I believe those relationships can work. Now, yeah. I know this is controversial, but I know there are people in the community. No, I, I actually have but. seen it work beautifully, you know, where one person is observant and the other isn't, because that what there is what you said, a mutual respect, a genuine curiosity, and a willingness to support the other person and whatever their path is, even if it's different from yours. And that's a powerful combina combination in a, in a relationship. That's a relationship, like you would say, is emotionally mature enough to not need your partner to be on the same page as you with everything. I, I, Ellie, I have worked, I, this is a fact. This is a fact. I have worked with families who have shared with me uh, when I talk about uh, religious uh, observance, they'll say to me, you know, I grew up, my mom went to synagogue every Saturday and my dad played golf and then we'd all come together and have lunch. Right. And you're waiting for like the other shoe to drop, like, and then the big fight happened or, and they'll say, oh no, there was tension at the beginning, but they came to some sort of a rapprochement. And what, you know, what's so interesting, Ellie, in those relationships where one partner doesn't try to bully the other partner into mm -hmm. doing something, they actually start to come along for certain things. Yep. What D Dr. Snarch called from the best in them, meaning yeah. that it's not coming with one hand tied behind their back. Right? right. But it comes from the best in them. And I think that's how, um, you know, this film sort of portrays this relationship in the end, that it's coming from the, the best and that they're both able to grow together with their differences. Right. Um, right. And anyways, I, I thought that it was a very subtle but mature message you don't often see in yeah. films and romantic relationships. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was quite beautiful. And and look, I mean, for me, one of the comments on, look, science takes as much faith sometimes as religion does. 
right? I mean, and we're discovering things that we always held as long true truths of science. Uh, you know, they often get upended and just like things in religion do. So I think it's an interesting, when you put those things side by side, they're often not so different. They're not as different as we think they are. So, so interesting. Okay. What else did you have in your notes? Curious. Oh boy. There's so many, so much stuff. Let's <laughs> see. Um, what did, I have a question for you. What did you think of the minister, the priest, at uh, the, I don't know what you'd call it. It wasn't a funeral and it wasn't yeah. a shiva. It was, like a, it was like a wake or, or like a reset. It's like a funeral reception. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't remember, because I have the script. I, I wrote this out specifically, Ellie. So I have the script here and it's different from the film. But in the film, Ellie's sitting on the steps, right? By herself. Yeah. yeah. What does he say to her again? Sometimes something like sometimes we don't know why God does what he does. It was something along those right. lines. I can't quite remember it. It was, but he really comes at her the whole way that it's filmed where she's small and sort of sitting in the porch, looking up at him and he's kind of looking down at her, you know, kind of in her face and, you know, sort of impressing upon her that there's a religious response to this how could this happen? Even though she didn't even ask, which I thought was really interesting. Um, you know, and it, and it clearly doesn't resonate with her. And I think one of the reasons is she didn't ask. She wasn't coming to him saying like, what do you think? He just sort of was like, well, you need to know this, which goes back to what we were saying about, you know, even a certain type of Holocaust education where you're like, well, you need to know this, even if you're not asking. And here's how I'm going to tell you about it. And, and in a way, he takes away her agency to be curious and leaves her wanting, you know, leaves her like, well, that wasn't an answer because I didn't even ask. And whatever he said didn't really sit with me. Ergo, religion is useless. You know, like I think that really impressed upon her that religion is not the place that I'm going to go for answers. I will go to science because the religious answer in that case was not, she needed an emotional answer. And he gave her this kind of theological intellectual one that wasn't really recognizing who she was and what she was feeling in that moment. The better thing would have been just sit down beside her and say, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, that's a, it's, that's a good point. I, I, let me read the script because in the script, it fleshes out sort of what where you're going with. He, he's more, in the script, he's more, um, what would I say, more empathic than in the film. But mm. this is what happens in the script. So it's, Minister, I'm so sorry, Ellie, more than I could ever say. Ellie keeps watching the pond, the clouds overhead, blah, blah. Ellie says, those lily pads must look like clouds to that carp, don't you think? The minister frowns. He gently says, Ellie, this life doesn't last forever. Someday, you and your dad are going to be together again in heaven. Ellie turns to him equally gently and says this. <clears throat> he isn't in heaven. He's in the ground. We just put him there, remember? <laughs> Interesting. So um, what, I'm curious, now that you've heard that piece of right. script, uh, what do you think? Does, does, it, does it play with, with what the filmmakers did with it? I think they make her out to be a type. You know, she's the type that um, she turns to logic in order to regulate her anxiety <clears throat> yeah. rather than say turning to um, belief or faith. 
And um, both of those things, if they're used just to regulate your anxiety, are not really the point of them, right? So I think that for her, the safety was in the, the concrete, you know, hard truth, his body's in the ground and that's it. Like, I'm not thinking of it beyond that. And she's nine and, you know, she's just trying to wrap her head around. Like I, I, if I were her, I'd be like, who's going to take care of me? Like those would be the questions going through my head. Um, but yeah, I think again, I think his not waiting for her to ask, um, does a disservice to the point of, a theological perspective on tragedy. Yeah, you know, one of the things that people ask me, I've had parents ask me this quite a bit, is how do I know when I'm anxious? You know, you talk a lot about anxiety, but people think of Woody Allen, like that, when people think anxiety, right. they think Woody Allen, right? right? right. And, and it's so, <clears throat> it's interesting, Ellie. I've had people say to me, who are clearly very anxious, say, but I'm not anxious. Because we have this idea, right, of what anxiety right. is, and usually- I'm just, I'm just high functioning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not anxious I'm just high functioning <laughs> in, in what way what do you mean by that Meaning like I just get a lot done all the time 24 yeah. 7 <laughs> yeah I mean th that's that's a concept that we have talked about uh people right. who are over functioning who do for others what they could do for themselves right you know people who fall into that category are often therapists coaches um clergy doctors you know these are people who bring they, they're they're like that at work and they're like that at home Right, Dr. Bowen said, "People who overfunction, it's just their way of regulating anxiety. They're 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 as anxious as the people who underfunction, who are in bed and can't get out of bed. That, that's yep. sort of what he's saying. Okay. Whenever you, what I tell people is, whenever you are um, standing on some sort of a soapbox and you feel the need to send a message to someone, whether it's your kid or your congregation or your client, this is true for therapists as well. Whenever you feel that you need to say." something to people that they didn't ask for it has something to do with an unrecognized anxiety within yourself that you are right. trying to regulate your anxiety something is stirring you up that you're not aware of and if you can just get that person to buy into the ism or the thing and if yeah. we, the best place to see this is online if you want to see an anxious culture just go into twitter and watch how people fight there is clearly a need that i need you to believe what i'm saying and clearly it's because you're so worked up about the thing Right. So, uh, you know, one could say thinking about, you know, this idea that we've talked about uh, seeing, hearing and understanding someone, you know, a child who is experiencing a tragedy. First of all, first of all, there is no book that I know of right now. And I've read a lot of them that says what to do with a nine year old who has lost both her parents by the time she's nine. I don't know about that book. I don't know where that book is. I don't even know yeah. what you would put in that book. What I do know is that in the film. There's this kid who now has no parents, she's an orphan, and she has to process that. And how she's processing that is she's looking at a pond and she's looking at lily pads and she's looking at fish and she's looking at the clouds. And if it was possible for the minister to be there, see, hear, and understand her, he would have sat down on the step and said, what do you see in the pond? Yeah, that is a kind of a beautiful cloud, huh? She doesn't want to talk about her dad's death right now. That's, That's right. not where she's at. 
Yeah. And he really could have had a, a, um, a very uh, a powerful, wise elder experience with her that would have planted the seeds for a future conversation That's about right. her father who just died. And he, he blew it. And when I say he blew it, I don't believe he did this in a malicious way. In no. the script, in the script, he's quite, he's, I'm so sorry, Ellie, more than I can ever say. I believe yeah. he's sitting there and he's, but it's, it, this is what's so fascinating, Ellie. We talk about empathy, empathy, empathy. He empathizes so much with her pain yeah. that he gets in the way of connecting with her. You know, He's it's funny. So I, sorry I, for her. I actually was just uh, there's a um, a Musar class. So Musar is the like uh, vein of Jewish study and thought that has to do with character development. And I was teaching a class yesterday, and we were looking at um, uh, kindness and boundaries. And one of the things that I found, which was from, I believe it was Duties of the Heart, which is a, a text that was written you know, a few hundred years ago, where he says, if you're kind to a person because seeing them in pain makes you uncomfortable, that's not the kind, that's not the type of kindness we're talking about. Right. Like if you give somebody like, you know, charity because the pain of them being in poverty is too much for you, that's not the charity that we aspire to. Right. Because that's regulating, that's giving because I'm regulating my own sense of, of discomfort rather than actually seeing that other person and what they actually need. I, I, if you can find the passage or the page, yeah, I'll find it I, I have that book somewhere. I'd love to see that. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the, like, if you know this, I feel like the, the, the priest in this film just oversteps that boundary because he is empathizing with her and being like, oh, if I was her, I would want to hear this rather than what does she want to hear right now? What does she need? And, and being curious and open and, and calm because yeah, otherwise she just feels hit over the head. And I think she just shuts that door completely after that. And, you know, I mean, I, the focus of this uh, podcast right now is, is sort of the overbearing, you know, uh, anxiety that's coming from religious people. But I think that uh, I have experienced many times, both in my practice and personally, the other side, which is where yeah. people of science come in with their, you know, their sledgehammer and try to sledgehammer their ideas over people's heads, um, and, which seems to me to be coming from a source of anxiety. I, I think, Ellie, about a few years ago, when that sort of new atheism literature was coming out, there was all these mm -hmm. debates going on with Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. Yeah. And then a guy, Francis Collins, came along, Dr. Francis Collins, uh, who right now, I think he's head of is it the, I, I forget, he, he's head of the Genome Project. Anyways, brilliant guy, brilliant physician, brilliant scientist, who is a very religious Christian. Um, and he was coming, he wrote a book, uh, I forget what it was called, but he wrote a book and I heard him speak. And I, I found him to be, you know, even though we, we come from different religions, we have different theological beliefs, um, I found him to, to have such a light touch with the whole thing and humility about this. And there's just yes. something... There was just something so beautiful about how he approached this. So I would say, standing on one foot myself here, as we're concluding um, today's podcast, I would say that um, a general marker of uh, uh, anxiety is any of this uh, preaching from the soapbox to people, somehow you know what's best, 
for people how to grieve, how to live their lives, um, how to believe and whatever, um, almost always, not only are you off the mark in terms of uh, convincing anyone, because mm. you're, you're just going to get reactivity, but it says more about you than it says about them. Yeah, uh, for sure. And so- I keep I keep hearing that a lot right now when I see people posting stuff society is this and like I'm like you know you could just insert your name instead of society like you're really you know speaking to the stuff that you're struggling with personally not so much what society is doing because society is a bunch of different people with a lot of different experiences and um you know you kind of don't see that when you sort of label society in a certain way so it's kind of interesting that yeah I feel like this film really asks some great questions that are like you said still relevant today what if there was a major disruption in what we think in what we believe in how we live our lives in what our lives are about how will the world respond and it was really interesting to see how they answered the question in that film that is so relevant today like you said like some people freak out some people are totally on board some people militarize some people like protest it, it was really fascinating but it, like you said I think the beauty of it was I mean this is what I said to um to my kids my you know I'm a crier so my kids turn and Eva are you crying and to me what made me cry was the thought that and yet they still built it right? They, that humanity still came together and built that machine. Right, right. They didn't right. ignore it. They didn't just fight about it. They didn't like, eventually people came together and built it, that humanity had enough curiosity and faith and what, you know, wonderment that they would get behind doing something that seemingly was alien and, and impossible. And, and I think to me, like you said, it draws a beautiful parallel to the race for, i mean not only did we end up with one vaccine we ended up with four yeah. in an unprecedented amount of time and and that took people believing that it was possible in a paradigm that had never been done before and and the beauty of that you know ellie you know this yesterday i went to get my vaccine at a huge arena here in uh, in toronto mm -hmm. and um i almost was it was you know I, I, the whole process i thought was going to be just annoying Right. I wasn't looking forward to it. You know, who wants to get jabbed with an M mRNA vaccine? I mean, not me right. if I don't have to have one. Right. right. So I wasn't looking forward to the whole process. Uh, and yet I was almost moved to tears by the time I, I sat down because very yeah. similar to what you're saying. We're all standing in this huge line, everybody in a very similar shared experience, you know, black, white, Asian, uh, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, atheist. We're all in this, we're all in this together. There's yeah. a guy playing guitar. He's 75 years old, busking, wow. playing um, Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. He's got no teeth. Okay. He's Amazing. by the way, side note, just very funny. He introduced the song. He he starts off as a huge line and he goes, I hate needles. Oh, I hate needles. And it's, <laughs> and, and it's on a microphone. So it's it's broadcast to everybody standing in line. Because when I was a kid, I bit the dentist hand because oh I, he goes, but you know what, guys? I got my shot yesterday. You're all gonna be okay. <laughs> Everyone's uh, face. How like, beautiful. It was, it was funny. Oh, that's really but great. then we go in and the from whatever social workers or nurses, you know, everybody was helping each other. I saw elderly people, uh, spouses, holding each other's hands, getting their mm. medical cards out. I saw sons mm. and daughters with their elderly parents walking with them. 
I got, I got very, I got, as we say in our tradition, kerflamped. Like I got all yeah. caught up. I got choked up. You're not the only person I've heard that from. It was, a lot of it was so moving, that. the whole Quite experience beautiful. for me. Yeah. So very much to what you're saying that, you know, um, it's very easy to get cynical with, with this world that we have, but there is something here. Um, yeah. Anyways. Okay. Yeah. That's a good place to end on Yom HaShoah. It's a good place to end. All right. Awesome. I guess we'll brainstorm this week on uh, what we're going to do next week. I think you're right. Next week might be our 30th episode. <laughs> Maybe we'll have cake. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks everybody. Amazing. Thank you for coming. We will see you next week. All right.